Ah, so this morning there is a bit of a surprise. Let's see whether this thing is working. The surprise is that uh, we are going to be changing gears. We've been studying Romans for the past few weeks and now we're going to change, as Mark said, to get ready for Easter. So Mark and I uh, sat down uh, to discuss the sermon series that's coming up for this year. And he said, I'd like to bring about a bit more of a focus on Easter and Christmas, some more reverence and preparation uh, than we often give them. And being a man that absolutely loves tradition, just church tradition usually, I'm still quite terrible at holding on to any of like birthdays and anniversaries, um, I thought this was a sensational idea. So often we tick the boxes of Easter and Christmas as we go through our series or go through our our church uh, year without spending the time to be able to prepare our minds and our hearts to really reflect on the significance of what's happening in those moments, to prepare our minds. Uh, And on a side note, if I have to go through Christmas again and not really focus on Jesus becoming human, which is really what's happening there, uh, I think I'll just be just very quietly frustrated. Uh, We miss some really big things when we rush through these seasons. So, Uh, After I'd given Mark the tick of approval, uh, as the associate pastor needs to do for the senior, uh, he came up with a wonderful uh, plan, starting this week with the Transfiguration, and over the next, uh, I think it's five or six weeks, uh, we'll be heading towards the cross uh, and spending time doing that. So uh, once we finish that, we'll go back into our Romans um, and, and get on with that. But let's just spend a quick moment in prayer um, to prepare ourselves, even for this sermon. Father, we come before you, uh, I come before you, Lord, knowing uh, after spending time in your word that there is so much to behold here, so much that mere facts and knowledge about your Bible will not, um, will not transition from what I've written uh, into the hearts of these people, Lord, because it is a revelation from you that needs to take, take course. Father, we come before you praying this morning that as we look at Jesus' transfiguration upon the mountain, Lord, that you would uh, act inside of our hearts, Lord, that we would, uh, we would, in a way, ascend the mountain to spend time with you, Lord, and be shaped and changed to be more like Christ even in these moments. Father, give us refreshing, give us wisdom, Give us remembrance and give us refocusing, particularly in this series as a whole. We pray your blessing over this and for everyone that's going to be preaching in this series. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are going to start off with Matthew uh, chapter 17, verses 1 to 13. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and his brother John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothing became dazzling white. Suddenly there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three dwellings here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud a voice said, This is my son, the Beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell to the ground and were overcome by fear. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Get up and do not be afraid. 
And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus himself alone. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He replied, Elijah is indeed coming, and I will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. But they did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man is about to suffer at the hands, at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. So this passage is a little bit of a conundrum. Here we have the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of Man, the one from this point of view, or this story's point of perspective in time, is about to bring into action the saving plan for all of humanity, to bring his people out of sin and to take his place on a heavenly throne. That guy, that king, in this piece of scripture, bursts into light. He's joined not by one, but by two dead prophets and a luminescent cloud that is declaring the pleasure of a heavenly father for his beloved son. And the conundrum is that this spectacular event doesn't occur in a place where all of the nation and the entire world can see him. There is only a small witness of three disciples on top of a mountain. It took place either on Mount Hermon, which is, if you remember, a quiz from a number of weeks ago, covered in ice all the time, Mark sussing out whether it's the correct mountain. I don't know, I got it from Google. (laughs) Or it took uh, place on Mount Tabor, which looks like an upside-down bowl. I think I know which one I'd prefer, given uh, that thermal underwear was not invented at the time. (laughs) Regardless of which mountain this event took place, Uh, In history, Matthew, Mark and Luke all contain this event. Why was it not done in an amphitheatre or in front of a massive crowd? Why not at least all of the disciples rather than three? Why was such a special event kept secret? We even see in verse 9, don't we? Jesus orders them, tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Can you imagine for Peter, James and John, the reactions to being told, you have to keep this to yourself. You've just seen something absolutely incredible, but don't tell anyone. Just bite your tongue for a little while. The question that we have this morning is, why so secret? I believe there are two answers. The first is timing. Remember, uh, those times when you as a child had to do had to own up to something, maybe to your folks, that you had done, something that you knew was going to earn a particular reaction from them. Bad reports are a very classic uh, example of this. Perhaps you were all better students than I uh, and never had this problem, but I had to often give bad reports to my parents and knew I was going to get a reaction. But I also knew that if I waited, perhaps until a younger brother whose prowess among the library tomes was not so well known, that if I waited until after he'd given his report, the back of their expectations would be broken already. (laughs) 
And I would receive less of an open air of despair and disappointment and more of just broken submission. <laughs> and to their delight, instead, they would say, at least he's done well in his behavioural comments. Uh, you'd also know not to follow your sister, who was exactly the opposite to that, and achieved uh, everything. You had a much greater chance uh, going, uh, just hiding your report instead of bringing it to your parents after my sister had gone in. Timing affects reaction. Only a few verses ago in chapter 16, verse 15, Jesus says, Who do you say that I am to his disciples? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. They knew by now that Jesus was the one that would usher in the new kingdom. He was the Messiah, the waited one. They'd been waiting 400 years since the last prophet to find this guy, and here he is. However, they totally misunderstood how it was that it was going to happen. What type of Messiah was he going to be? They thought that Jesus was going to be a saviour that looks more like a warrior king, riding into battle, sword in hand, battle cry on his lips, to rescue his people from the Greco-Roman rule at the end of a sword. We know, of course, that is not how Jesus was going to rescue the world, how to rescue his people. The people wouldn't be rescued by a warrior, but by a servant's death on the cross. Shortly after Peter's confession of Jesus as the Messiah, it says in verse 21 of chapter 16, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. And Peter's response to Jesus saying, this is how it's going to unfold? Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. There was a vast misunderstanding from the disciples' perspective as to what the Messiah was going to be. And if the potency of Peter's reaction to Jesus saying this is any evidence of his reaction to Jesus' confession of the saving plan, what type of... Um, sorry the reaction to the evidence of the transfiguration where he bursts into light, where there's dead prophets and where God is declaring himself that this is my son, was going to send them way off the track. Instead of, they may have declared him Messiah, but they would have instead picked up their swords, picked up pitchforks, they weren't warriors, and marched into war instead of allowing the cross to occur. Better that such a potent event as the Transfiguration be kept private for now. Left until later, after he has achieved the cross and the newly formed church can review and reflect in awe of the Transfiguration in its correct light. So that is timing. But the second reason for the secrecy, and one that I would more... Uh, would like to draw more of our attention to this morning is the intimacy of the moment. When have been the most intimate moments in our lives? Moments that have been between you and just one other. Moments that are private. Not just in isolation from the pu public, but private in that no one else can share in the inner shifting of our souls at that time. No one else 
can enjoy that moment. It is yours and that other person's alone. I think about the moment when I proposed to Catherine. I think about our wedding. I definitely think about our wedding night. We don't need to be bashful. I have three children. We know how it happens. (laughs) At least three times. (laughs) I also think about the moments when holding Ella as a newborn and then Constance as a newborn. Moments that are incredibly intimate and private just for me. Even for a midwife to look upon it, they don't get to share in those moments. They are mine. When there are people around, no one can share in that. Even those that saw it get no share. It is a moment like this that we are being invited into. A witness between Jesus, the Son, and his heavenly Father. A moment of quiet intimacy and communication. Men, we know the weight of our Father's words. How they impact us. We know it either in its presence or in its absence. The lack of our fathers, uh, sorry, the approval of our fathers can lend strength to everything that we do, or their disapproval, disappointment, or even silence can rob us of all the certainty in something that we are doing. I'm not sure if there's something akin like this for women, but I certainly can vouch for it between a father and a son. When Catherine and I were weighing up deciding to drop my career and pursue full-time study, we spent a year in prayer and discernment. We asked the elders for wisdom. We asked friends. We asked uh, mentors. We asked Catherine's parents. But in all of those people, for me, there was no one else's approval and admiration that I so dearly desired than my own father's. So when we asked, and he gave us the affirmation, Receiving it from him, it gave me more confidence than anyone else. One of the aspects of Jesus that we so often lay aside when considering him is that he was human. He was a son. We must not forget his humanity in this. Despite his sinlessness, he feels and reacts as we do. Here he is, about to give up, not his career, but his life. He is about to enact the saving plan for his people, to lay down his life on the cross and bear the sins of the world. And it is here at the start of his journey that he desires affirmation from his father. So he heads to the top of a mountain in isolation to seek out communion with his father. And in the intimacy of the moment, between the Heavenly Father and His Son, that we are privileged to be able to read of this morning and to look into, we see the Father proclaim from the clouds, This is my Son, the Beloved. With Him I am well pleased. Listen to Him. What strength these words must have lent Jesus in the actions He was about to partake in. To be able to step off of that mountain and begin His journey towards the cross with the approval of his Father. This so beautifully highlights in these moments the humanity of Jesus. He didn't become like us only on the outside, but humbled himself in every way to become one of us. What a state of humility. For many of us, we see and are told by the world that such desires as the approval of others is nothing but weakness. 
A strong person is an individual that needs no one else, certainly doesn't need their approval or their affirmation. To be successful, you must harden yourself to the perspective of everyone else and do it all alone. But here we see at the roots of the salvation plan that the Son, Jesus, sought first the desire and desired his Father's approval. He was not alone, but shared in encouragement and the strength that the Father provided. Many people, however, do not have the support of wise, loving fathers. To step towards Christ, if you are coming from a, Christian, a non-Christian family, does not receive admiration or approval, but instead confusion and judgment. There can be a sense of loneliness inside of the pursuit of God. I know many people that have felt this way. The simple act of, of your family, sorry, the simple act of even going to church on a Sunday morning can feel like you are being rejected and punished by your family because you are making a good choice in your life. The good news about a passage like this is that you are joining a new family, one that encourages and admires and affirms your pursuit of God. That's the good news. The better news, though, is that you are, even if you don't have an f- earthly father that is encouraging you and affirming you, you are gaining the affirmation of a heavenly one. In your pursuit of him, he similarly says to you, this is my son, the beloved, with him I am well pleased. Or this is my daughter, my beloved, in her I am well pleased. But this is not all that is happening in this passage. We are not simply gaining insight into the humanity of Jesus, but also into his divinity. There is only one place, one other place in Scripture, where a man's face shines as it does here upon a mountain, and that is Moses at Mount Sinai. He requests of God at the top of the mountain that he would be able to see his glory, and the Lord allows it. He reveals to Moses the physical manifestation of his glory and Moses' face lights up like a flashlight. When he came down from the mountain, his face scared people with its brilliance. What was it that Moses saw? The glory of the Lord. But what is it about the glory of the Lord that would affect such change upon a man? The Lord declared to Moses as his glory passed in front of him. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sins of their parents to the third and fourth generation. Moses wasn't simply getting sprayed down by the stuff that's inside of a glow stick. He viewed the very character of God. It is his perfect, beautiful character that is his glory in action. They are the one and the same. He saw God's character full in the face and did what men were created to do. He started to reflect the glory of God. But Jesus is unlike Moses. He was not simply reflecting an external glory. But like the Father, his character and his purpose was so perfectly aligned 
that he began to light up from within. In Jesus' transfiguration, it can be said, just as it was of the Lord on the Mount Sinai, the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and the gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. The very same description given to the Lord is the same glory that is shining out of Jesus. Just as on Mount Sinai, God's glory was not simply words, seen, uh, but seen in action of salvation only months before. In the salvation of his people from Egypt. That culminated in the death of the firstborns. Similarly, now that God has also shown himself again in this fashion, what is about to occur? The salvation of humanity again. Not from Egypt this time, but instead from sin. Here we see Jesus' divinity shine in congruence with his humanity. It is into this wonderfully intimate moment between a father and his son and their shared glory in the salvation of mankind that the disciples Peter, James and John get to witness. It is no wonder that they seek to prolong the time by offering to build shelters. But, and this is the last point of this morning's message, they don't build shelters and remain in that secluded and intimate moment. But after receiving the blessing of the Father, Jesus descends the mountain and begins his journey towards the cross. Jesus does not remain seeking the blessing of the Father. He does not keep talking and talking about it, but gets on with the action of salvation. There is something to be said here for us. There is a time and a place for seclusion and seeking the blessing of the Lord. There is no doubt about that. Prayer, reading your Bible, and at times waiting for counsel and confirmation are wise. But once you get them, once you have it, it's time to get on with the job. We see Jesus shine with glory. And that glory contained within it the beautiful words of the Lord. But again, remember, those words were not idle and empty ones. God on Mount Sinai with Moses had just rescued his people from Egypt. Again, Jesus here is shining with that same glory, but it is not stagnant, it is in action. He is about to step down and save the, wor save the world. We are best seeking the glory of the Lord ourselves. We are best at reflecting his glory not when we are sitting idly, but like God, like Jesus, when we are actively in pursuit of what he has blessed us to do. He was never stagnant. Now, we are not, giving the, uh, we are not given the job of saving the world, but we are given the jobs of loving our God with all that we have, all our hearts, soul and mind. We're given the job of loving neighbours just as ourselves. And we're given the job of spreading the name of Jesus. Let us become more like Jesus. 
in seeking the approval of the Father and then getting off the mountain and going and doing the job. His glory is not idle. And if we are in pursuit of him, neither should we be. Now we're going to come to a a time of prayer and then we'll have a song. You're, of course, welcome uh, after to come down the front if you'd like to pray, um, whether it be about absolutely anything or whether it be even about fatherhood particularly. That's what struck me. Um, But I pray that this message has really hit you. To be honest, I found it a massive challenge doing this one. Um, That connection between father and son is an intimate one and a challenge for many people, uh, sons and daughters. But we have a heavenly father that is so much more. Let's pray. Father, we come before you giving thanks Lord, we give thanks because despite how we feel, despite how we react at times, Lord, we know that you are there and you love us and you desire us. Father, our confidence can rest in who you are. Father, I pray thanks for the ability to be able to look into your word this morning, to be able to look upon the transfiguration, a time spent between you and your son, a moment of intimate relationship between you and to be able to meditate on it. And Father, I pray that this would continue to fill us all with hope this morning and joy. I pray that as this series goes on, that we would be able to continue to understand who Jesus is, what is happening, and the action of the fullness of God in saving us. Lord, bring us to a better understanding this Easter of what it is that is happening, and transform us, Lord, that we may be more like your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from Hills Baptist Church. To find out more or to hear other great content, find us at hillsbaptist.com or on your podcast app.